0: Hello, everyone. It's nice to see you here. I have been to night church once. I used to go to night church regularly at another church, so I'm used to sort of coming to an evening service, but uh, it's great to be here tonight. Um, Congratulations, Alec. Where is he? Uh, You really nailed that word, S H I T T I M, in the reading. Thanks for doing that. Uh, It's sort of the word that uh, you don't want to get when you've got a Bible reading. And you think of ways you can pronounce it without actually saying the word, whatever he said. Um, I think this morning we had shitem instead of, yeah. Uh, The other reading you don't want to get is the one from Matthew uh, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy, uh, tracing the history of Jesus back to Abraham. There's lots of words there that you've got to work your way through. Uh, Today I want to actually talk a little bit about genealogies and family history. Uh, Have you got one of these? Whoops, it's going to take a while. Anyone got one of these at home? Oh, yeah, yeah, good. And you've got your pictures in there. Oh, I kept on buying them and then we'd have another child and then you'd have to throw that one out and get another one. And now I had one for grandchildren and I thought having nine was enough, like three, 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 and then one of the girls said I'm pregnant. So I had to throw that one out and get another one. It's very expensive when you're doing that. Um, but I'm thinking about actually tracing the family tree back. Who's interested in ancestry? Is anyone right into that sort of thing? Going back and tracing your family tree? Uh, has anyone had to do a project on that at school yet? I, I can see a few people nodding there. Yeah, you already, have you? Right. Did you find any really strange people in your family? Yeah. Ah, you did? It was your dad, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting when you trace back the family, the family tree. Uh, to find out. Now, in the family tree in Matthew's Gospel, uh, you can go back from uh, Jesus way back to Abraham. You realise it's all because of the promises of God made to Abraham and then passed on to David then passed on through to the Messiah. But there are four ladies that are mentioned in that family tree apart from Mary, the mother of Jesus. Four ladies. Uh, Two of them are involved in sexual scandals, uh, Tamar and Bathsheba. And the two others that we want to concentrate on tonight are those who are actually outside of the Jewish faith. They're they're Gentiles. We could say they were not part of the people of God, and yet they're mentioned in that family tree. And what we want to do today is to work out why. Was God's mission in the Old Testament just to have the Jews grow as a group and become the people of God? Or was his plan always to incorporate those who are outside of God's people and bring them in? And we're going to do that tonight by studying uh, a couple of those people we meet. Let me pray as we do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to come to your word and to read it, to understand it, and to get into it and find out more about you and your desire for us. Amen. Yep. Yep. How's, how's that? Better? Good. Okay. Um, what we want to do tonight is look at a couple of things, ask these questions. What do we learn about God from these people? What do we learn about his people? What do we learn about uh, the way we need to react to new people coming into our church? So that's where we're heading and uh, we're going to see what that means for us. The first person we're going to look at today came from that reading that Alec read for us, and that's the story of Rahab. Anyone called Rahab here? I wouldn't think so. Uh, Rahab is uh, a name that uh, doesn't usually crop up in the top 10 girls' names. Um, Rahab, we're told, uh, was a prostitute, a lady of ill repute. Now, sometimes in the Bible it says, uh, look at A, down at the bottom it says innkeeper, That's a nice way of saying that she kept it in and maybe did this on the side. But I think, really, from what the Bible seems to say, Rahab was someone who earned her living by selling her her body to others. Um, We're looking at Rahab. We've looked at uh, the Exodus, and we've seen how the people of God have wandered through the desert, come to the place just outside the Promised Land. Moses has died. Joshua is taking over. He sends in some spies to... uh, Reconnoitre the place, and particularly the fortified city of Jericho. That's the first town they've got to attack. Jericho is the oldest city in the world, I believe, and you can dig in Jericho and go back, layer upon layer upon layer, to find uh, the, the 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 ruins of this very ancient city. And uh, Jericho's walls apparently were so thick you could build houses on them because that's where we're told Rahab's house was, on the wall, and she probably plied her trade by waving out the window to travellers who were coming down the road towards Jericho. Now, we're told the spies ended up in the house of Rahab. What they were doing there, we don't know, but we can imagine. Uh, Rahab uh, tells the spies that she'll hide them and she will do a deal with them. Now, let's see if we can find a picture of uh, Rahab. We'll keep that one up there for us so we can think about what she might be like. She's a Canaanite, okay? She's not a Jew, She's someone outside of the faith. And uh, she's saying to the spies these words, and let's have a look at what she actually says. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt And what you did to Sihon and Og, uh, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Isn't that interesting that uh, when Rahab speaks, uh, it's a very powerful message. She just doesn't say she knows about God and she's in fear and trembling. She says, I believe your God is the true God. Now, she came from a place where they would have worshipped idols and they would have had other gods. But she acknowledges just not a a knowledge and assent to God, but I know that your God is real. He is the God who has given you this country to take. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, we find that Rahab is one of two women that is mentioned as those we uphold as people who had great faith. Who do you think the other woman might be? Have a guess. In the Old Testament, who was another great woman? that we could, could have been Rebecca? Could have been Sarah. And when you think about Sarah for a minute, you think, well, what faith did she have? She laughed when she was told she was pregnant. But read Hebrews 11 and find out why she's there. But Rahab is also there, and the writer of Hebrews 11 says this, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. Rahab risked her life to harbour those enemy spies. Uh, She realised that they represented the God of Israel, and she was quite happy to have them stay in the place, even though it might have meant death for her if those spies had been discovered. Rahab wasn't an Israelite and yet she epitomized what it means to live by faith and not by sight she believed in Israel's God and she and her whole family came under Israel protection now we know the story don't we we know what happens next Uh, the red cord anyone want to tell us what that's about That's right, they did. Well done, Zach. They climbed down the rope and they got away. Now, I always find it interesting it's a red cord and the people inside were saved. If you go back to Exodus, it's a red blood on the door and those inside are saved. If you go to the New Testament, it's Jesus' blood for us dies and those under that covenant are saved. I just, I just think it's marvellous the way the Bible sort of hangs together like that. But that's where the story goes. In Rahab, we told... Uh, stays. Now Rahab doesn't, the story doesn't finish there because we come to a section which I'll just read to you quickly in Joshua chapter 6. This is after the uh, Israelites go in and they take Jericho and uh, Rahab and her family are brought out. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and bought out Rahab her father and mother, her brother, her sister, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Not only did she live among the Israelites, she started off outside the camp, just someone who was not really part of Israel, but just sort of walked with them in their journey. But pretty soon she ended up inside the camp she would have learnt the ways of God. She would have learnt that she needed to repent and change because she ends up marrying a very influential Israelite whose name was, and we'll see it up there, Salmon. Salmon is the son of a, uh, one of a Judah's leaders. And from that uh, marriage comes a man called Boaz. And Boaz, we know, is married to Ruth. Let's talk about Ruth. Anyone read the book of Ruth recently? Yep, good on you, Zach. You're on. You're on, You're a fighter, no? Um, the the book of Ruth is an interesting book, isn't it? Uh, I I didn't know much about Ruth till I started to read it in a bit of earnest over the last couple of weeks, and I found it fascinating to find out the sort of things that are there. Uh, firstly, Ruth is a Moabite. She's outside of the people of God to start off with. In fact, the Moabites were descendants of Lot. And they made it fairly difficult for the Israelites when they moved into the Promised Land. Um, Their women seduced the Israelite men uh, to come and follow a fertility god that they were worshipping. And the the, the Israelite men just went and did it. Uh, So they were easily seduced. Uh, So Ruth is a Moabite, but the story begins with her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law's name is Naomi. The story, in a nutshell, is is about uh, overcoming adversity, and God's big plan. Um, and we'll see that as we go through. Again, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I'll just give you the start of how it begins. It begins with a famine in the land of Israel. Naomi's there, and uh, as times get harder and harder, she and her husband decide to move to Moab where there's food. And they stay there for a while, but her husband dies. And Naomi thinks that the world is tumbling in on her. She believes it's God's hand of judgment on her, And she's uh, thinking that uh, God doesn't like her very much. Uh, Her sons who are with her uh, married two Moabite women, one of them being Ruth. And after 10 years of marriage, both sons die. Sounds like Job, doesn't it? Both sons are dead. And uh, Naomi again feels the hand of judgment of God. She then says, look, I'm going to go back to Israel. I hear there's food there. You can come with me if you like, but really there's no reason to come because uh, there's no, you're never going to have a family there. You may as well stay here and marry a Moabite man uh, because the only way you're going to marry a man over there is that someone who's a kinsman, uh, someone who's a family member, marries you uh, because your, your husband has died, maybe a brother or a relative, and she can't think of anyone. She's forgotten about Boaz. She can't think of anyone. In her misery and in her suffering, she's got this sort of, one-track mind of how bad things are, and she can't see the good. And she feels as though she's being hit by a sledgehammer. Well, as she draws near to the land, uh, the two girls go with her. Uh, One of them pulls back after uh, Naomi says, uh, you know, you can go back if you like. Her name is Orpah, and she decides to return. Uh, But Ruth doesn't. Ruth clings to Naomi And she won't let go. Naomi paints a very black picture of what life might be like. And Ruth takes her hand and walks into that darkness with her. Let's read again from the book of Ruth. This is what uh, Ruth says. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. What a great statement. Again, it's a statement of faith, isn't it? Your God will be my God. Now, she could have gone back to the gods of her ancestors, but she decides to stick with Naomi and walk into an unknown land, to an unknown people, to an unknown God. Sounds a bit like Abraham, doesn't it? He was called to do exactly the same sort of thing. So Ruth goes, and we know the story because it does have a happy ending. When uh, Naomi goes back, there, she actually changes her name to Mara, which means bitterness. That's how, that's how she felt. She just couldn't see that God had good things in store for her. And as the story progresses, we realise that uh, Ruth does meet Boaz as she's gleaning his fields, and she finds out he's a kinsman, and then there's some sort of... A, uh, politicking as uh, Naomi tells Ruth how she might be able to win this man over, and eventually she marries uh, Boaz. what's the point of the story? Well, apart from the fact that God has big plans for this couple, the point is that uh, when Boaz marries Ruth, they have a child who has a child who has a child whose name is David, and who's David? Yeah, King David, the king of Israel, that's right. Wow, isn't God amazing, the way he works things out. So we see two people in the Old Testament who are brought into the fold, not because they're good Jewish people, but because God calls people. It was never plan B to call people to know him, just from the New Testament. It was always God's plan to incorporate people from all nations into the people of God. Well, let's turn our attention uh, to the New Testament for a little bit. There's our two ladies as we think about them, and we'll leave them for the moment and we'll go to the New Testament and see what it has to say. When Jesus comes, uh, Jesus has a heart for the lost. And it's not just the lost in Judaism that he has a heart for. Uh, a Samaritan woman by well, an outsider, an outcast in her own culture. And Jesus moves towards her and brings her into a knowledge of who he is and the salvation that's there for him. A Roman centurion, a Canaanite woman who pleads with Jesus to heal uh, her child. And Jesus says, I haven't found such faith before. Uh, Jesus speaks about uh, prostitutes and lepers, those outside of the camp of Israel and bringing them into faith. Uh, when Jesus speaks about the, uh, the shepherd and the sheep, he talks about sheep from other flocks that will come into the fold. And the older brother in the story of uh, the prodigal son is a story about a, a, a Jewish position where the older brother thinks that he deserves uh, the good things his father's going to give him and he forgets that there are those outside who are the lost who will come in and enjoy the, exactly the same privileges so Jesus has a heart for the lost and at Pentecost uh, which we celebrate today the disciples stand up and they speak in other languages to the lost you see at uh, Passover time all the pilgrims came from all over the ancient world to stay on in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover and rather go go home and come back for the feast of Pentecost they actually stayed on and so when uh, Peter gets up to speak and the others get up to speak there's People from all every nation under the sun there. And they say, hear that word of God in their own language, and when they go back, they take it with them to the ends of the earth. Well, what are the practicalities? How does this work out uh, in practice in the New Testament? Because it sounds good in theory, bringing people into a, a, a group that's already existing But are there problems and how did the disciples deal with the problems? I want to give you two quick examples of of what happened in the early church. And the first one comes from the the book of Acts, which we just read about uh, in Acts chapter 6. It's all up here, so you probably don't need to look at your Bibles. But let's read this together. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, back in those days, there was no social security. Uh, Like some people in cultures today, if you are a widow, then your family has to look after you or you fend for yourself. You might have to beg on the street. Um, But here in the early church, there was provision for the widows. But here's the problem. The Hebraic, the Aramaic uh, Jews, had a, a Jewish culture. The Hellenistic Jews had a Greek culture and there was a clash and it was beginning to fester. So we've got a problem. What do the disciples do? Well, let's read on. Uh, so the twelve, there's the apostles there, they gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That sounds like a bit selfish, doesn't it? We don't want to wait on tables. We'll just do our thing and let others do that. But... When we read on, you see it's actually more than that. Uh, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. See what they did? They looked at the situation and said, we're not going to put it as item six on the agenda at parish council, and get to item five and decide to go home, they decided they would deal with it there and then, straight away. Secondly, they prioritised what was important. It made them think, what's important in this growing church? What do we need to do? Well, we need to keep on preaching the word of God. We need to make sure that we are a praying congregation and we are outreaching to those who do not know. And those who are gifted in that area should have that ability to do that. But we see the problem and we need to rectify that. And so they chose seven men who would look after that solution. It's interesting that the seven people that they chose all had Greek names. Isn't that interesting? They didn't stick in a, a Jewish Hebraic Christian in there just to make sure that the Jewish widows got enough food. They said, it's a problem and we're going to deal with it in this way. The result? Well, we read in the last little bit of that section, so the word of God spread. The numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and now a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that wonderful? We've got a problem and a solution is found and uh, because of that solution, uh, the church doesn't fold. It, It doesn't say we're going to be exclusive and we're going to keep people out. We're always going to be inclusive and we want to bring people in, which is the message that we get from those Old Testament stories. Second one, briefly, that I want to look at comes from uh, Acts chapter 15. And again, I'll just give you the background to this story. Uh, Acts chapter 15 is where um, Paul has heard, he's on a missionary journey, and he's heard that uh, there are some people who are making it really difficult for new Christians to um, fully enter the faith. Uh, What the Jewish Christians have been doing is saying, well, that's great that you're a Christian now, but you also need to adhere to some of the things that Jews do. So uh, there are food regulations and there's circumcision. And we'd like you to be circumcised to show that you're a a true member of of this new Christian Jewish faith. And Paul says, no, that's not right. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he's going to challenge Peter and they sort of have a discussion about what's going to happen there. Uh, And they came to this conclusion. Peter, at the end of the discussion, stands up and says this. You can see that he addresses the people again. They must have loved having these committees and addressing everyone, but here they go. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. But then why do we try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He finishes speaking and there's silence. No one says a word. Eventually, James, the brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church, stands up and he says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It's a game changer. There are going to be hiccups along the way, but you can see where they were heading. We need to maintain an inclusive church, not an exclusive church. If you, if you go to a church where people say, no, to be a member of this church, you need to make sure that it's just you and no one else comes in. We are an exclusive group. Uh, don't go. Uh, you need to be part of an inclusive church. And I think ours is like that. What we need to do in this church is learn how to be more inclusive. And to finish off with, I just want to give you a few ideas that came from actually sitting around and talking. I asked some people in life groups to let me know uh, what their thoughts were, and nobody got back to me, so I chatted to some people, and they told me their thoughts. I said, I meant to ring you and tell you, but this is what I'm thinking. Um, And so these are some of the thoughts that uh, they came up with. Uh, In practice, it means uh, inviting people from other cultures, Uh, To church events, not just those from our own culture. It's really easy to get alongside those who we feel familiar with. It's much harder to cross a cultural barrier and to invite people from another culture into our church. Uh, It means welcoming those from other cultures and encouraging them to bring in people from their own culture. Now some of the life group members were saying uh, as we chatted that they felt a little bit threatened if another culture actually came and and sort of moved into a, a church. And it might, be, it might be quite difficult to adjust. But I think the bit from Acts 7 is the important, Acts 6 is the important bit. When, when there's a cultural clash, what you do is you reprioritise. You look at what's important in church life, what are the core things, what's fluff, what's important, what's not, and uh, it makes you rethink uh, what you need to be doing. And you need to plan for people from different backgrounds coming in. So one practical suggestion that someone came up with, if you've been to one of the uh, first Friday feasts, we, ha- we had a barbecue the other night, sausages and uh, salad. Well, why not make it a multicultural night? Why not ask some of our friends from another culture to bring in some food from their culture? We could have a Thai night or a Chinese night. or Sounds nice, doesn't it? Or um, uh, some Indian food. Uh, that would be nice, some African food. And uh, highlight that culture. We need to find out what's offensive to a culture so that we don't offend those who come in from other cultures. Me being a white Anglo-Saxon, I I really don't know what offends and I need to know that. So I need to spend time speaking to people about their culture and getting to know them. So it means thinking through our priorities, doesn't it? Rahab and Ruth uh, saw the attraction, didn't they, of people from uh, their own cultures being drawn in to the Jewish nation. And uh, when Peter writes at the end of uh, his book in chapter 1, 1 Peter, he writes this, We've been uh, made a new people. We've been created to be a a holy nation that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, That's our aim, isn't it? Jesus said we're to go and make disciples of all nations uh, the nations are on our doorstep. and We've just got to work out how we're going to do it and how we're going to do it well. I'm going to pray for us and then if you've got any questions, I'm quite happy to hand them over to Stuart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you that we're able to learn from your word. Uh, we pray now that uh, you would help us to think clearly about how practically we can uh, look at the issues before us and what uh, leading you might give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anyone got any questions? Beautiful. Ah, yes, Stu. Yeah. Mm. No, it wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't easy. Uh, I, I think Paul and Peter were about to do battle in Acts 15 uh, and, and Peter over time um, still held on to the view that um, Gentile Christians needed to uh, still obey some of these other laws and they clashed later on about that. Um, so I think the decision was quite hard. It says that they, they would have prayed about it and then they would have uh, worked out what they needed to do. So it sounds easy, but I think, yeah, it was quite a difficult process. Yeah, Alec. I'm sure there would have been. It's one of those untold things, but you'll notice it said they were, they were outside the camp. To be outside the camp in those days it was to be a little bit like a leper. Uh, there were many people who followed the Israelites uh, out of Egypt. There were quite a few Egyptians who followed them. So you'd have the, the, you'd have the Israelite camp and then you'd have this sort of group of stragglers behind them. But eventually Rahab and a family moved into the camp uh, because of the marriage we see to a fairly prominent Israelite. So, yeah, I think it would have been difficult and there would have been the sorts of tensions we talked about in Acts back there of how to assimilate uh, people, especially with, with that kind of background, in, into church. All right. Thanks, everyone. I'm done.